0: Sometimes when we set our hearts on knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, we have to roll our sleeves up, dig deep, and put in the hard work. And it's a little bit like that this morning as we come to a tremendously wonderful passage, the opening of John's Gospel, what's called the Prologue. And so I would like you to join with me. It's a little bit abstract, worked hard to make it concrete this morning, but uh, I'm looking forward to knowing Jesus a bit more and making him known let's pray Heavenly Fathers we come to your word your precious word the word that is Jesus we pray that Jesus will be more real to us by your Holy Spirit we pray through his name Amen so what do you do when a couple of Jehovah's witnesses appear at your door J-Dubs do you pretend you're not in Do you hide behind the couch? Now, some of you may have very smart doorbells that when the doorbell rings, it sends a live video feed to your phone. Some of you might have those. They're wonderful things. So what happens when your phone sends you an alert and there's two Mormons smiling, looking at you in 4K high-resolution video? Do you think about setting the dog on them? Or maybe you're brave enough to open the door and talk to them. Now, why are we so nervous? Why are we so hesitant when we have JWs or Mormons knock on the door? I mean, they're very misguided about Jesus. They've got the wrong end of the stick. Well, often we're nervous because they have a Bible of sorts, and they know how to use it, whereas we never seem to have the right verses to counter their arguments, and so we're hesitant. However, hey, well, we can change this. We can change this today as we open up God's word about knowing Jesus and knowing Him better. As I said just a moment ago, we're coming to the introduction to John's Gospel, to John chapter 1. And the first, actually, we're just going to look at the first five verses today and pick up the rest next week. John chapter 1, from verse 1. We have really three things. As we're going to explore here, we're going to explore the mystery of the Word, the Word, the Logos. John's going to open that up to us, and we're going to see the nature of the Word, we're going to see the activity of this Word, and then we're going to see growing opposition to this Word. So the nature of the Word, the activity of the Word, and the growing opposition. So let's dive in at uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. In the beginning. Where else in the Bible have we heard that phrase, in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? Genesis chapter 1, Moses starts by writing this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this connection, this use of this phrase is very intentional by John. He connects the word very much with the beginning of Genesis and he wants us to capture something of the grandeur, the wonder and the majesty of this word just like in those wonderful days of creation. So in the beginning, in the beginning was what? In the beginning was the word. In the Greek term for word is the word logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and this Logos, this word, is the focus of the mystery that John's going to open up in his first 14 verses of John. Who or what is the word and why should we care? Now for Jewish folk listening, this would sit well for them. In the beginning was the word because Genesis says it very clearly that God spoke and things happened. So it would have sat very well for the non-Christian Jews when they read in the beginning. It would also set well for the Gentiles because in Greek worldview, there were lots of gods. You may have heard of Zeus and his wife Hera, brother Poseidon and Hades and all the other multitudes of gods in Greek thought. But behind these Greek gods and before them was the Logos. The Logos. And so for non-Christian Gentiles, they would have been happy with In the beginning was the Word. It would have sat well with them. But then comes a significant twist. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Now there's an awful lot happening with this small phrase of four words. It would have confused Jew and Gentile alike when they first heard it, and it certainly confuses our Mormons and JWs today. This confuses them so much so that they twist these four words and insist that their text could, should read this. And they have this in their corrupted Bibles. They said, and the word was Ah God, lowercase g. See the difference? In our Bibles we have, and the word was God, capital G, whereas Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons say, and the word was Ah." God lower case g in doing so they diminish and demean and misrepresent the word. Now two things I'll say briefly about this misinterpretation. Firstly, Mormon and J dubs don't understand the original Greek text and how to use it. Secondly, they are inconsistent. they use upper and lower case g for God whenever it suits. So they don't even follow their own semantic or linguistic rules when it comes to, does the Bible mean capital G or lowercase g? But I don't want to spend any more time on a counterfeit. I want to get to the real thing. What are we to do with, and the word was God? We're faced with quite a mind-stretching idea. Putting it another way, the nature of the word is, is the nature of God himself. The nature of the word is the nature of God himself. Let's accept this for now and move on to verse 3. What does verse 3 tell us about the nature of God? Uh, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now what does this tell us about the nature of the word? Well, notice that the text talks about him and not it. It's personal. The word is a him, and not an it. Now, for Greek thought, they thought the word, the Logos, was an it, an impersonal force. For Star Wars fans, you know, the force, that sort of idea. Impersonal energy. But here, the Bible makes it very clear that the word is personal. It's a he, and not an it. So that's the first two things that we learn about the nature of the Word. The Word is God and is personal, has personhood. He's not abstract. Now what about the activity of the Word? Let's move on. And verse 3 is very helpful about what does the Word do? I'll read it again. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so... John continues to draw from Genesis 1 and makes it clear that the Word was the agent of creation. An outstanding claim. The Word's activity was from the beginning of time. The great mystery, of this Word, was how all things came into being. Notice how John reinforces this in both the negative and the positive. In the positive, he says, through him all things were made. And you might be thinking of an exception, But before you can think of an exception, he says this. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. There are no exceptions. And of course, this has major implications for the nature. So we've learnt that the activity of, of the word was to create at the beginning. But it also says something about his nature. Because the word, with personhood and as God, there was never a time when the word was not The word always was. The word was not created. John is placing the mystery of this word before time began. For not only was the word at creation, doing the creation, but was before creation. Now if we get back to our Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they will say that there was a time when the word did not exist. And that the first thing that God did was to create the word. But of course... The second part of this verse clearly contradicts that. Without the word, nothing was made that has been made. We turn to verse 4. What else do we know about the activity of this word? Verse 4. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Notice how John still has us firmly rooted in Genesis and the act of creation. What was the first thing that God created? Light. Let there be light. Where did this light come from? Well, in Genesis, we don't know where this light came from. It just said, let there be light. But here we're told the light came from somewhere. It came from the life of the Word. The Word had life. And like a spring bubbles up pure crystal clear water, the Word had life and bubbled up pure light. What's the word for life? What's the word for life? In in the Greek, it's bios where we get our word biology. Biology is made up of two Greek words, bios and logos. Biology. So when you study biology, you are studying words about life. Biosphere. It is the region of space, the region on earth where life exists. Biosphere. Whether this bio come from biology and biosphere came from the word at creation. This bio created light. The light has its roots in the word. God said, let there be light, and there was, and it came from the word from his life. This is a profound mystery that God is opening up for us. It is a profound mystery. And so, what is the nature of the word? The nature of the word is God and and, and his personhood. What do we know about the activity of the word? It creates, the word he creates. He created at the beginning of all things. But there's a caution here because verse 5 indicates that there is the beginning of opposition to the light. And you would say, well, who could possibly resist the word? Who could resist the word when the word is God? But we see that in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there's something quite unusual happening here. In the material world, darkness is not a something. It's an absence of something. So if you imagine a room, it's at night and it's pitch black. And in that space in the room, it's dark. But darkness isn't something. It's an absence. It's a nothing. So when you fumble for the light and flick it on and light comes then light is a something. It's electromagnetic radiation of a certain frequency and the light instantly fills the room. Now, darkness is a nothingness. It's not a something that resists the light. You don't see pockets of darkness in the corners of the room resisting the light, do you? Because darkness in the material world is nothing. But not so in the spiritual world. In the spiritual world, in the Gospel of John, darkness always resists light. Not just here, but all through the Gospel of John, there's a big theme of light and darkness, and darkness resists the light. It tries to conquer the light. Darkness tries to resist and fight back. We are told here right at the beginning that the darkness will not overcome the light, but it's trying. We see this a little in... John 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so in the spiritual world, Satan and his cohorts prefer darkness because their deeds are evil, and they push back against the light. And also we people, humans, We prefer our evil deeds and we don't like the light, so we push back against the word. We push back against the light. So, in the physical world, darkness is an absence of light and you just flick the switch and darkness goes. There is no resistance. But in the spiritual world, darkness is always a resistance and a pushing back to the light. See here in verse 5, the growing opposition to the Word. Now, we're going to pick this up again next week. There's a lot in here, isn't there? Told you hate had to roll our sleeves up, dig deep. We'll get past this prologue in a week or two, and then we'll be into the wonderful stories of John. But let's sit with this, because it's all about knowing Jesus and making him known. So we're going to pick up on the the nature of the Word, the activity of the Word, and the growing resistance from verses 6 on next week. But today we've got two things to do. One is the big reveal. I can't wait for another two or three weeks to get to the answer of who is the word. We're going to skip to verse 14 to have the big reveal. And then we're going to take home something practical that we can do during the week. So what's this big reveal? Well, in the um, sort of electronics world, in the world of, of Apple and Google and all that, they know about big reveals. If you're anything like technology, I just happen to see on YouTube, the big reveal of a few years ago of what was called Google Glasses. And to introduce this big reveal, they had some people flying above the convention centre with Google Glasses on. They dropped out of the plane with a live feed into the conference center, landed on the flat roof, got on mountain bikes and, and cycled, and then came cycling through the auditory. That's a big reveal, isn't it? That's a big reveal when you get something... Uh, should try that one day. Drop the minister out of a plane. See if I can land on the roof and mountain bike. No, nah, it's probably a bit much. But it's all about Jesus. So what's the big reveal here? What's the big reveal for Jesus? Well, the big reveal comes in verse 14. And if you're listening, if you've got ears to listen, this is mind-blowing. Because all this time, up from verses 1 to 13, the people who originally heard this, they didn't know who the word was. And a lot of what was saying was agreeable to the Jewish folk because they believed that God's word created in the beginning. But when we get to verse 14, everyone, Jew and Greek alike, are blowing out of the water because this is what verse 14 is. Can't wait till next week. And here it is. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And both Jew and Greek would not agree with that at all because for the Greek, the Word, the Logos, was abstract. It was a force. It was behind reality. So it can never become flesh. And for the Jews, it was even worse because... How could God become human and live among us? It was just too impossible. And John says, No, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and his name is Jesus. A little later on, uh, John the Baptist, not John the author, but John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Word made flesh. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, puts it like this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself. Philippians 2, 6-7. What we're talking about here is the incarnation. It is the holy God, creator of the heaven of earth, coming as a human in human form galatians 4 again the apostle paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit writes this for when the set time had fully come god sent his son when the set time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption of sonship isn't it amazing John 1.14 boldly, clearly, without hesitation declares Jesus to be this word. Jesus is God. Jesus was the agent of creation. Jesus is a source of life, not only at creation, but now as he gives us eternal life. Jesus is a sort of light, again, not just at creation when God said let there be light, but he is a sort of the light, eternal light that he gives to us. This is a great wonder and a great mystery. Who can understand it? This is a mystery that no one can fathom completely, but is a mystery to be enjoyed. Jesus came, Son of God, to rescue you and I from our sins and to have us adopted as his children, God's childrens, daughters and sons. And this is why we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus. Now, over the last two Sundays, last Sunday when we looked at Thomas and today, we have looked at the biblical basis for worshipping Jesus. Last Sunday, we saw Thomas. And what did he say? My Lord and my God. And when he declared my God to Jesus, he was aligning himself up with John chapter 1, verse 1. And the word Jesus was God. So we have the theory in John chapter 1 and then we have uh, Thomas putting it into practice in John chapter 20. My Lord and my God. So let's put this into practice. How are we going to put this into practice? Let's get back to our Mormons or JW standing at the door. Like Jews who in chapter 10 of John picked up stones to kill Jesus. Why? Because he claimed to be divine. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons get very cross when we claim that Jesus was divine. Nothing's changed over 2,000 years except most Mormons don't pick up stones to to deal to us when we say Jesus was divine. But it's the same issue. And both the Jews back then and the Mormons and the JWs, they look at Christians and say, you are breaking the Ten Commandments, rule number one. When you worship Jesus, you are breaking the rule that says you are to have no other gods before me fact Jim Warmons and Jay Dubbs will insist that are we to please God we must cease and desist from worshiping Jesus. And I've done this before, in fact that's my main lead when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't get bogged down in Bible verses, I just tell them how much fun I have worshipping Jesus. You know it drives them up the wall. <laughs> it really does. You can't do that. I say, well you yes, say can. And you can say, well look at John one one. You know the word was God. Now I've found this when I've talked to Mormons and J-dubs a little bit fruitless because they've been well-skilled in telling us that we've got our Bibles wrong and it should be Ah God, lowercase g. And you can point out to them, and I have, that they are inconsistent in the use of lowering uppercase G when it comes to the, John, uh, to, to the word God in their Bible. Uh, but it doesn't seem to make much headway. However, uh, when I've told them about biblical examples of worshipping Jesus... You him to stop them in the tracks. Because you can say, well, if it's good enough for Thomas, it's good enough for me. When Thomas saw Jesus standing in front of of him raised from the dead, and he said, my Lord and my God. Now, what did Jesus do? Did Jesus say, no, no, Thomas, don't worship me, worship only the Father? Did he say that? No. Jesus accepted the worship of, of Thomas and soon you're going to be experts in John so you could then go to John chapter 9 and the man born blind that was healed when the man born blind at first didn't know who Jesus was because he was blind and when he washed his eyes Jesus wasn't around but later on when Jesus made himself known to the man born blind now healed how did that man respond well he responded in chapter 9 of verse 38 The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped Jesus. Did Jesus say to the man born blind, No, no, don't worship me. Worship only the Father. No. Jesus accepted the worship from the man born blind. So, Mr. Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mr. Mormon, it's good enough for Thomas and the man born blind, it's good enough for me to worship Jesus. One more. What about the disciples? Well, Luke finishes his gospel with the ascension, with Jesus for the last time going up to heaven. And what did the disciples do as Jesus was going up into heaven? Luke chapter 24, verse 52 and 53. Then the disciples worshipped him. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. What were the disciples doing as Jesus ascended? They were worshipping him. Notice the balance that you have here now too because they didn't just worship Jesus. They went to the temple and they praised God, their father. And this is reflected in our music and our hymns. We have some of our songs that focus on worshipping Jesus. And then we have other hymns that focusing on worshipping God, the father. And then we have other hymns and songs that focus on both of them. Isn't it wonderful that we can worship our Heavenly Father and Jesus in one breath, all empowered by the Holy Spirit? So let's pull this together. You've done so well. This is pretty serious stuff. Well done. Stretching stuff. But it's all about knowing Jesus and making him known. What have we learnt today? Well, we're building up a picture of who Jesus is, who the Word is. We've looked at the Word And his nature, his activity, and his opposition we will pick this up next week. We've also looked at some practical ways of making Jesus known. When confronted by Mormons or J-dubs, there's two ways that I approach. Uh, One of them is to do exactly what I've done today, which is just to say, I love worshipping Jesus. (laughs) And then you have a conversation. And you know they've got no answer? Because you can point to three examples in the Gospel of people worshipping Jesus, and I'm saying... it's a choice between following you good sirs and following the bible well i'm going to follow the example of the bible you know and those of us who know jesus those of us who have been worshiping him over the years through the good times and the bad times the joyful and the dry why would we ever give that up and i say this to the mormons or j-dubs why would i ever give this joy that i've had for the last 40 plus years of following jesus for following a bunch of rules that you offer. That's all they offer. And if you ask them, do you follow all the rules? They'll say no. Can you? If you ask a J Dub or a Mormon, are you assured that you'll get to heaven? And they say, I hope so. I've never had a Mormon or J Dub say, I'm definitely going to heaven. They all say, I hope so. Well, it's a wrong hope, isn't it? Why would you give that up? It's like, it's like you've got this amazing roast dinner with all the trimmings. And an amazing dessert. Someone knocks on the door and says, you say, hello, hello, I've got a dry crust of bread. Would you like this dry crust of bread? Come outside and eat it with me. You say, no. (laughs) I've got a roast dinner. Why don't you come in and eat that with me? And that's what we're talking about here. About knowing Jesus and making him known. Let's pray. Wow, Heavenly Father, the Word was God. And it blows us away. What a mystery. And we don't understand it fully, but boy, we love Jesus. And we pray that you'll make him known to us, that he will grow as a greater and greater delight in our life. Make, may your Holy Spirit make him more real to us. And I pray that our worship and praise for Jesus will overflow so that we can make him known to others be glorified, be honoured in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.